for them all night. Um, but uh, it's good to see you all. Um, thank you. For some of you, I know it took a lot of effort to dig out, or all of you it did. Um, and for some of you, it was a little bit more treacherous than others. Um, it's good to be together. And um, several people said, you drove all the way. And I thought, well, I love coming to speak to you all and seeing you all. So that wasn't bad. And the roads were largely clear other than digging my way out of the parking garage. Um, but that wasn't bad at all. And my children have had a great time, as I suspect um, the kids here have. We were, we have a, there's a third floor terrace area at our building. And so yesterday they were out. Um, marching through the snowdrifts. Um, at one point, they were pretending that they were reenacting part of The Sound of Music if they were escaping across the Alps in the winter. <laughs> and so, they're like, Gretel, don't leave Gretel behind. And we're like, okay, we won't leave Gretel behind. Um, so it's good to see you all. Um, I know I'm going to provide a little context rather than start with a story like I normally do, because I know as a church, you're uh, wrestling with the question, how do we understand uh, women ministry leadership? Right? And, and how are we doing that? And so um, Dig asked me, could you help us look at a specific passage, not about that question, because you're wrestling with that as a congregation, but to look at Acts 15, the passage we read, because it's one of the first times that you see the early church wrestling with what they believe. And you see them wrestling with how they're going to understand what doctrine means and how are they going to decide how to act together. Um, in ministry, and what authority is scripture going to have as they do it, and how are they supposed to understand how the Holy Spirit is leading them as they do it, and so rather than, um, but I wanted to give that context because um, it's the context that you all are aware of, and it would be weird for me to speak this passage without acknowledging that that's the context. Part of what I want to observe, though, is um, that this always happens to the church, right, Um, and I love the fact that Acts is so clear-minded about the early church's successes and its failures, right? about its great triumphs in proclaiming the word and um, the uh, weakness of the early disciples in their fear or Ananias and Sapphira. I'm also glad that this passage is here because um, inevitably as the church engages in mission and lives out its life in the context that God has brought us into, it's going to have to wrestle with what do we believe? And how do we remain faithful to the gospel as well as responsive to the context that we're in and do so in a way which honors the Lord? And so this passage is here, I think, to guide us in that. So let me pray, and then um, we'll begin. Lord, it's good to be with uh, the folk here at uh, Community Bible Church. And we think of the folk who could not be here today, uh, whether because of health or the inability to get out of their driveway or the um, impassibility of roads that are not yet fully cleared. Uh, would you be with them? Uh, we're grateful that it, uh, being part of the body of Christ isn't merely a physically present issue, but uh, though they are not physically here, uh, spiritually we are one body together. Uh, those who uh, gather here weekly um, along with people around the world who are worshiping, and so we recognize um, for hours now, the church around the world has been worshiping you. And so we join with the voices um, in Oceania and Asia, Africa, and Latin America uh, coming late uh, along with Europe to praise you. You are the Lord uh, over every culture and nation and people. Um, you are supreme, and we bow before your authority. Uh, we receive it as your good gift. And we long to be more attentive to the way that your spirit speaks so that we could glorify Jesus in word and deed and power in the places that you've called us. Uh, propel us into mission, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the context, right? Um, 
something has come up that challenges the theology of the early church and the way that they practice their faith. What's happened, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, is suddenly Gentiles are coming to faith, right? Non-Jews, people who have um, limited to no exposure to Jewish religion and Jewish practice, are now turning to Jesus, um, in part because of Peter's ministry in uh, what is now modern-day Syria and Lebanon, and then Paul and Barnabas' ministry throughout Asia Minor, Turkey, um, and uh, into early parts of Europe, right? So... Uh, Gentiles are turning to faith. Now, Jews were used to uh, Gentiles becoming Jewish. They, were, they could become God-fearers, or they could firmly convert, right? And they'd be circumcised, they'd be immersed, and then they would be treated as Jews. But this new thing was happening where people who had no desire to become a follower of Judaism were becoming Christians. And as far as Paul's ministry um, was being uh, conducted, and possibly Peter's ministry as well, nobody was being asked to become a Jew first. They remained Gentiles. They were uncircumcised. They weren't necessarily eating kosher. Um, they, so they weren't observing the dietary laws where if any of you know an Orthodox Jew, uh, your dietary laws shape a lot of the way that you're going to interact with the people around you. It determines who you can eat with and what you're going to eat and where you're going to buy. It shapes the ways that you engage in the marketplace and the ways that you live. Um, and all of a sudden... As Paul and Barnabas are coming through Asia Minor and coming back to Jerusalem, controversy breaks out. And you can see in the passage that we had read, um, Christians who were zealous for the law, who were Pharisees by tradition, but who had become followers of Jesus, as they're hearing Paul and Barnabas describe, look at the amazing thing God is doing, say, you are not being faithful to our scriptures. The Old Testament is clear what it takes to become a good follower of God. And you have done none of these things. If these people are to become followers of the God revealed in our scriptures, which at that point is the Old Testament, they should become circumcised. They should follow our dietary restrictions. All of the law should apply to them. Now, from this side of history, of course, it seems, well, that's an odd request. But imagine yourself at that time where the only scripture you have right, is the Old Testament, where everything about those scriptures tells you how important it is that if you're going to be a follower of God, you as a male should be circumcised, you should be keeping kosher, you should be observing the Sabbath. Um, I'm, in my quiet times right now, I'm reading through Nehemiah in one of the books that I'm reading it. And Nehemiah, the last half of the book is Nehemiah yelling at <laughs> and shouting at the people, why are you not observing what the Old Testament law has required to do? God sent us into exile once before. Do you not think he would do it again? Right. So from the very earliest books of Moses all the way to the post-exilic literature, God hammers home the point, you must be a faithful Jew to love me and observe me. So the Pharisees who had become Christians are arguing from the scriptures, look, nothing has changed. You, we should continue to do this. What's at stake in this conversation? Well, this is an incredibly high-stakes conversation for the early church, isn't it? At one level, the legitimacy of Paul's ministry among the Gentiles is now at stake. Because if he's been wrong about this, they need to send people to re-evangelize all those people who'd become followers of Jesus because they were not properly evangelized or discipled. Right? Paul's entire ministry will be discredited if this isn't clarified. Um, at stake is what does it mean to be a Christian? Are we merely Jews who have discovered who the Messiah is, or there, is there more that has happened? And can 
this faith unite people across racial lines and across cultural lines? Or are we essentially um, exclusively designed to be a largely ethnic group that has um, non-ethnic people join it, but who otherwise completely lose their identity in that? At heart, this is a question for them about what's the authority of Scripture. So, do the laws of Moses apply or not? Is how God spoke about himself and the nature of the Jewish people still true or not? Right? The question being posed isn't as simple as circumcision, which isn't totally simple, or dietary laws, which are much more complicated. It's a fundamental issue of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean that these words that we have are authoritative to us? And is this mission um, worthwhile, or is it actually a terrible mistake? So, thanks be to God, right? the leaders of the older church gathered together in Jerusalem to begin to wrestle with these questions. And in... Um, as we said uh, in verse 6, right, it says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, what we should know, right, is what's going on for the early church is absolutely normal. For all that it's the first time that we have it described in the book of Acts, the reality is whenever Christian mission advances, whenever it begins to cross boundaries, whenever something new happens, what the church always has to do is gather together, reflect on what's happening, study the scriptures together, listen to the Holy Spirit, and decide how to move forward. Right? This is normal, particularly in mission, that you encounter things which make you review and potentially rethink how we understand our faith, and it occurs all the time. As the early church right, began to develop, you began to see it wrestle um, with the context of Jewish monotheism. And they had to ask the question, so we believe that there's only one God, right? The Shema is very clear. There is one God, the Lord. He is one. We say it, every, we say it multiple times every day. And yet this man has come who claims divinity for himself in what he does in forgiving sin, uses language about himself that only God would do, and is then resurrected from the dead. How do we understand who this person is? Because he seems to do everything that God promised that he would do when he came. But he's a man. And after he ascends to heaven, we have this experience of his presence that's so distinct and different that it's clearly the person of God and yet distinct. And so in the context of Jewish monotheism, right, they began to develop an understanding of what does it mean that we worship a triune God? Something which may have been hinted at at the Old Testament, but all of a sudden becomes more and more developed as you see the um, New Testament goes, so that Paul is unashamed in saying, I'm a servant of God, right? And then he begins to use that same language for Jesus Christ. You see it um, as the early church then continues to engage um, in the pagan religions uh, around them. And then they have to define, well, it's not just three gods, right? It's still Jewish monotheism. And so they're having to work out what does it mean that we worship one god in three persons. Um, you see it as they confront Arianism and early heresy and then have to define what does it mean about the incarnation? What is the nature of the body of Jesus and the calcium, right? So that perpetually through the early years of the church, you see them wrestling and trying to define what they're doing, studying the scriptures, looking at how ministry um, occurs. I think you still see it happen today. So um, I was talking with a professor of systematic theology, and she was saying, what's fascinating to me is that the earliest um, wrestling of the church is around theology. What do we name about God? And she said, in the last hundred years, it's been um, 
theological anthropology, what do we believe about the nature of human beings that we're really wrestling with? These are the new questions the church has wrestled with. We spent 2,000 years working on what is God like? And then, you know, in the 1500s around the Reformation, there was a long controversy and conversation about soteriology. What's the nature of salvation? And now we're asking, what does it mean to be human? So I think, for example, here in the United States, it's only after the civil rights movement pushed the largely white evangelical church to think about civil rights that we started talking as a church more and more about what does racial reconciliation really look like? It was not a conversation the church was having at least here in the United States, much before the 1960s or 70s. But by the 80s and 90s, and certainly now, it's nearly unavoidable. Why? Because our understanding of what it means to be fully human has changed dramatically enough that the church is beginning to wrestle with, how does that force us to cross ethnic lines? Um, I think part of the reason that churches are wrestling with women in ministry leadership is partially because after World War II, as more and more women began to work outside of the home and began to take more and more leadership positions everywhere else in society, it invited the church to go, hey, do we need to rethink what we're doing? And is it really reflective of scripture or is it not um, in the church, right? Um, you see it at every other level around human sexuality. What the church, after the sexual revolution, has now had to wrestle with, what do we actually think about the nature of uh, sexual fidelity? And we're asking it in a new way, and we're asking it deeply, and churches are wrestling with it again. I think part of what happens is the church constantly does it. And so how do we do that kind of wrestling? How do we engage these questions in ways which are faithful to how God has revealed himself in Scripture? Attentive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. In a way which actually honors God and allows mission to advance. It's not easy but the church has been doing it for 2,000 years. Part of what you see as this group gathers, I think, is their deep confidence that God is actually sovereign. And I begin with this because it's not a process issue, but it's a posture issue. Right? So you'll notice, right, they have this conversation. Then Peter gets up and he says, look, brothers, you know that sometime ago God made a choice. And he begins to talk about God's choice to use him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then Paul and Barnabas come up later um, in verses uh, 12 and following, and they talk about how God confirmed this mission activity by Paul and Barnabas by providing signs and wonders to actually document. We didn't just come and speak something and do something, but God continued to confirm by the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of the same works of mercy, justice, and power that Jesus did that the Holy Spirit was in this too. And then James is really clear, right? When James finally stands up, he goes, look, the Lord has spoken about this before. And then at the end, when they're sending this letter out to the churches to announce the decision, they say, it was good of the Holy Spirit in us, right? Constantly throughout this conversation, there's a deep confidence that the Lord is speaking, the Lord is active, and the Lord will make his will known. Why is this an important posture issue for us? I think, one, because it allows us to enter these kind of hard conversations without anxiety or anxiousness. <clears throat> it allows us to enter these conversations without feeling burdened like we have to figure it out all on our own. If the Lord is sovereign, if he's a God who speaks through his scripture and through the Holy Spirit, if he's really in charge and has a vested interest in us being faithful to him, he will speak and make himself known. 
And if you believe that, then what it allows you to do is to engage deeply in the questions without the anxiety of like, we could get this terribly wrong and God is just going to smite us. I experience this all the time because when my wife and I um, have to make major decisions in life, um, should we have children? Now that we have children, where should they go to school? What should we do about our career choices? Where should we live? Right? All of those questions, as those begin to bubble up, I don't know about you, but we, we get filled with anxiety, in part because especially if it involves our kids. We're Asian, so all the tiger parenting issues come up for us. Like, we must get to great schools. We must work them harder. Like, and how, you know, is this going to be an excellent school? And the teachers will be like, they're excellent. They're excelling. Whose standard are you using? Right? I mean, it just all this kind of bubbles up. And then because both of us work, then we have double parent guilt coming in. Like, we have to be in a good school because we aren't here all the time. And maybe we're bad people. And, right, it just kind of consumes us. And then if you're in New York City and you have to deal with the public school system and the testing that occurs in, when you're four years old to get into the right kindergarten and then in fourth grade to get into the right middle school. And your friends are telling you, well, you know, we hired a tutor for $150 an hour to do the placement test. And we're like, we don't love our children that much, we think. I mean, right, it's all this... <clears throat> Part of what has actually settled us in those conversations is before we begin them, we recite a couple things to ourselves. One, God loves our children far more than we love them. Um, we can trust them into his care. We need to be responsible, but in the end, no matter how responsible we are, they're either in his sovereign hands or not. And his hands are trustworthy and ours are not. And then third... He has been overly gracious to us now that most of the time the things that we wrestle with are because he super abundantly blessed us that we're forced with the problem of choice. At least in the community I live in, I can look across the street and I know the people who live in the buildings across the street are not worrying about which school to get their child to. They just want their child to stay in school. Right? The, the choice of, is this the right neighborhood to live in, is not the question that they're asking. This is the only neighborhood they can afford to live in. So if we're wrestling with it, it's because we've been so super abundantly blessed by God's blessing, we're in danger of taking his blessing as a burden. And as soon as we feel burdened by God's blessing, something has gone terribly wrong in our spiritual life. But once you kind of go, God is good, we can trust him, and he's been blessed, he's blessed us, all of a sudden, I, at least I found in my life, we're able to enter the conversation not grasping, not desperate, and not overly anxious. But we're actually able to be faithful and responsible. But all of the weird emotional issues of guilt, like are we being good enough parents, and are we trying hard enough, right? And all of the um, anxiety drifts away, and actually then, uh, as you all know, right, when you do those hard conversations with a spouse, and you're trying to decide your future, Half the time, it's just trying to negotiate each other's anxieties and fears. And when you can let those go, you're free to make a, you're freer to study and to think and to wrestle with the hard issues. Um, and you aren't worried, like, am I going to offend somebody by asking this question? Can I trust you with this? But instead, you actually walk in open-handedly. Right? The primary posture that the early disciples walked in on was a deep confidence that God speaks and that he's sovereign. And if we walk into these kind of conversations that way, um, it kind of it lowers <clears throat> our anxiety. I think what's interesting is, obviously then, there's a robust conversation that's summed up in merely a single verse of Scripture, right? Um, after much discussion, it doesn't even get its own verse marker. It's just the prelude to Peter standing up, but... 
the early church wrestled with this conversation, and it was okay to wrestle with the conversation. What I love is that it wasn't just somebody raised the question, they quoted a Bible verse, and then they walked away. But they actually said, you know what, as a body, let's wrestle with this together. And so I'm sure they heard significantly from the Pharisees um, who made the initial point. And they wrestled with what the Old Testament was saying. And I'm sure they heard people on the other side. Obviously, Luke has a goal for his book, which is to demonstrate the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. So he mostly quotes those folk. But it was a robust conversation, and that's okay. And in part, I'm impressed with your congregation in the way that you, as a group, are wrestling with this conversation. It's very appropriate, because part of what we believe is that the Holy Spirit speaks to the community and will speak to the community together, right? Um, we are not a people who assume that only people with specific um, theological degrees or education are the only people who will speak um, about what Scripture says, because we actually want everybody to wrestle with the Scriptures together. A great outcome of your process beyond an actual decision will be, do you know the Scriptures better at the end of this than you did before? Have you been able to approach the Scriptures daily or weekly with an attitude, Lord, whatever you say, and however you lead, if it's help me understand your scriptures, because if I know your scriptures um, invite us to this direction, I will submit to it and embrace it. Right? If that's all that is accomplished, a digging more deeply into scripture with a posture of openness to how the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us to think harder and deeper and better about it, what an amazing gift. That alone would be a gift to you as a congregation. Um, What's interesting, right, is they wrestle with this, um, and then, the way Luke describes it, they're acutely sensitive um, to what God has actually been doing that provokes this question. So I love that Peter then reiterates um, what happens in Acts 9 as he's called to preach the gospel uh, to um, Cornelius, right? This is, if you're reading the book of Acts, I think this is the third time, if not the fourth time, um, Luke retells the story. This is the briefest one, and at this point, I'm kind of glad because I'm like, please, not another like cloth dropping down from heaven thing. But right, it's the like, um, but they retell that story again, and then they listen to Paul and Barnabas's testimony. But how did your mission go forward? How do we know that God was blessing this? And what is the fruit of what you've been doing in the churches that have been established? Right. Part of what I think is happening there is we're paying attention to um, what is Christ doing in the specific context that mission is going forward in? And what's the cultural context of where this is happening? And how do we understand this? And how do we look at the fruit? And I think it's, it's useful to pay attention to how is God moving and where do you see fruit? It's not the only question that we ask, but in fact, what is God actually doing by means of the, uh, the, the, that's provoked in this question. So if you're dealing with the question of women in ministry leadership, it's worth asking, what fruit are we seeing um, from uh, women who are leading? What are some of the dangers? How do we understand the larger context in which we find ourselves culturally that provokes this question? What are the assumptions that we should be asking? I think, in fact, you see the church do that when they finally announce their um, decision, right? They, just, they end up saying, look, Gentiles are just going to be Christians. They're Christians because what Jesus has accomplished through his death on the cross. It's an act of grace. However, they say, we'd like to ask you not to do four things. No blood in your food. 
don't eat food sacrificed to idols, no sexual immorality, um, yeah, and then nothing strangled, because again, uh, the blood is your right. Essentially, could, could you keep reasonably kosher and don't sleep around? Now, why these sets of things, right? I want to suggest that they chose these restrictions largely because these were going to be the primary impediments to fellowship within the church. Because if these Gentile Christians wouldn't eat kosher, it meant the Jewish Christians weren't going to eat with them. And on the issue of sexual morality, I think part of what they're saying is, look, this is a distinctly Jewish practice that everybody knows in the Roman world. The Jews made up about 10% of the Roman Empire, and they're like, look, Moses is going to preach everywhere. They're all pretty familiar. We don't sleep around as a people, sort of, right? Um, so if we could do that, it will not bring discredit on our faith where we go. And so we're going to adopt these restrictions together. Um, what's interesting to me is as you watch the New Testament continue, even though this is the clear decision by the Jerusalem Council, by the time you get to Corinthians and Romans being written, Paul is really clear. Look, he's basically says, right, um, some of you are really obsessed about this eating food sacrifice to idol thing. So if it's going to offend people, don't do it. But let's be honest, he says, right? These idols aren't anything. They're just stone and brick. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? It, 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 nothing has changed about food. If it doesn't offend you, feel free to do it. But if it's going to prevent me from fellowship, you might want to um, pull back. And so it's interesting to me that Paul is acutely aware of his mission context as he's continuing to adapt what the Jerusalem Council stated. But he actually says later on, this isn't as much of an issue in some of the contexts that we're working with at Corinth and um, in parts of Rome. So don't worry about it unless it's going to cause a problem. Because in fact, what he's doing is he's saying, look, that was a cultural accommodation where the early church was. I want to remind you that the actual truth is we know these idols have no power. Food sacrifice to them means nothing. You could do it in front of an altar, and you could do it in front of your butcher block. It's the same food, because there's only one Lord that we have to worry about. So, brothers and sisters, pay attention. Right? Um, he's acutely aware of that context. And he's paying attention to it, and the early church is paying attention to it. So we should pay attention to it as we make these kind of decisions. Obviously, the most important thing is... Um, and what seems definitive is when James finally stands up and he says, look, brothers and sisters, um, listen to me. Um, Simeon's described how God first uh, intervened to choose the people for his name from the Gentiles. And that would be disturbing to us, except scripture so clearly indicates that's where this was supposed to go. And then he quotes, right, um, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. In ruins I will rebuild it, restore it. And now if you're Jewish, if you're a Pharisee, you're saying, yes, one day Israel will be fully restored. That's what Jesus is going to do when he, when he comes back. He's going to restore Israel, but it's David's tent. And then it goes, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. <clears throat> it's an interesting verse to quote. Right? Um, because we're in a situation in uh, Acts 15 where there are dueling scriptures which are useful to you. So if you're a Pharisee, you're thumbing through or scrolling through, just like we do on a computer now, right? You're scrolling through um, Leviticus, you're scrolling through Nehemiah, you're scrolling through all those, and you're throwing out those texts. 
And James doesn't quote those texts. James quotes this prophetic piece. Um, <coughs> and it comes out of Amos. And I think it's interesting to ask ourselves why. Because James could have easily chosen a passage from the law saying circumcision is required. That's scripture. Right? He could have easily continued to quote other texts about how Gentiles should or should not be included and how even if you're a Gentile, you'd never make it all the way into the temple. That's in the law as well. In fact, that's what will get Paul arrested toward the end of the book of Acts. James chooses a passage that points to what God is doing now and intends to accomplish through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return. Um, He's paying attention not just to the specific text of Scripture, but to the overall trajectory of how Scripture is written and intended to go. Right? Because we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus profoundly changed everything. And we're very clear. It doesn't mean that Jesus um, came to abolish the law. Jesus himself was clear on that. But as we've continued to reflect on what Jesus did and to Peter's experience with the cloth and um, the inclusion of the Gentiles, that Jesus so deeply fulfilled so many of the requirements of the Old Testament law and fulfilled them both in his person and his coming as well as in his sacrificial death on the cross that the early church had to radically rethink how they were going to understand the Old Testament was going to apply. And so for almost all of us, um, we don't pay any attention to religious requirements when we eat other than to try to eat somewhat healthily. But in fact, our doctors probably prescribe dietary restrictions that are far more restrictive and far more consuming to us uh, than the Old Testament does. Right? Um, we don't really think about blending different kinds of fabric in our cloth. Um, most of the kosher, all of those things were rethought in light of what Jesus has accomplished. And so it's interesting to me that as James is looking for a solution, how will scripture speak to that? He's very aware of the Old Testament scriptures, and he's looking both at the law and also in what the prophets have said God intends to do, and says, this is going to guide our decision, is where God is headed with this. Um, one way that's been helpful for me to think about these kind of things is I've thought about uh, wrestling with issues where there seems to be disagreement um, is an image that N.T. Wright, um, a New Testament scholar and theologian, has used. He said, you know, if you think about the Bible, um, about history as kind of a, a play in five acts, right? There's creation, which we all often talk about. There's the fall and its long history. Um, there's Jesus and his coming. These are the first three acts of the play, right, of the story of Scripture. They're very clear. Then there's this hiatus. Now, and then we have the fifth act. We know how it's going to end. These are Revelation and Isaiah and all those, right? And he says, the way you live out your Christian life now is imagine that you're an actor who's come into the theater about to enact a play together. And what the um, director says is, we have a problem and a tremendous opportunity. I have the first three acts. Creation, fall, Jesus. I know where the play is going to end, because we have the last act. We're missing the fourth act. So we're going to improvise, all of us, on stage, at the same time. Now, we're very clear where we've come from. We know exactly where it has to end. And consistent with where we came from and where we're going to go is how we're going to act out act four. Okay? 
So we have like a couple thousand years. Let's go. Um, so in part, as you think through how you're going to engage these scriptures, um, I encourage you, partially it's pay attention to specific passages, absolutely, because we want to honor the word of God. Pay as well attention to the trajectory of where the scriptures are going and where we think God's going to bring us all in the end so that you're putting it in the proper context and that we live out faithfully this in-between stage between where we know we've been and we know where we need to end up. Um, And as you do so, um, what I find is there are helpful ways that that sort of posture helps us engage issues. So, for example, as you wrestle with the question in front of you, the two common things that have come up, at least in most conversations around this, have been things like, well, how is this similar or different to how the church should teach or did teach about slavery? And how the church does teach and should teach about human sexuality, right? And they all become conflated. And so if you pay attention to trajectory, as I think James was doing here, part of what you see is if you look at slavery, it certainly was an institution of the Old Testament, though bounded by certain laws, rules, and regulations, which were better than most. If you pay attention to how the New Testament continues to deal with slavery, you do have passages like Paul, where he says, look, if you're a slave, then serve faithfully. Don't try to change your condition. I think it was, but, you know, if you get a chance, feel free to take it. And then you get to Philemon, where Paul goes, you know, the slave of yours, Philemon Onesimus, he's more than a slave now. He's actually your brother. Act appropriately, okay? He escaped from you. You could kill him. But he's now your brother in Christ. What are you going to do? I'm sending him with this letter, and I plan to come visit you. I hope to have a good report. Right? And you begin to see kind of a trajectory of how the church is beginning to shape that institution. Too slow for many people, but within the larger trajectory of scripture, when you start getting to there's no longer slave nor free, junior, right? Oh, where's that going? And how do we understand that? The trajectory seems to head in a direction. As you look at the trajectory around human sexuality, what you'll see is pretty consistently nothing changes. The same laws that were repeated in the Old Testament seem to be conferred in the New. Um, at no point does the early church go, you know, that stuff about adultery, none of us like it. Let's get rid of it. Right? I mean, it's a very consistent trajectory, old and new, so nothing seems to change um, in the way that the scriptures are talking about them. Well worth asking, what's the trajectory of scripture around the question that you're facing? Let me end with this. Um, they've wrestled together, which is good. They've, dove, they've um, listened to how the Holy Spirit is actually at work. Where is their fruit? Where is their danger? They're wrestling with the scriptures and how it's contextualized. Um, And let me do two things. One of which is um, wrestling with the contextualization of scripture is also helpful because it allows you to interpret the books well. Right? So um, I don't know if any of you, um, I'm sure you don't because you're nicer people than me, but those of us who've ever eavesdropped on a conversation before, um, you know often, um, sometimes the things people say are just very odd, somewhat striking, often scandalous, and what you really need is, right, I wish I knew what they were talking about, because all I have is this one half of the conversation, and it's a little one-sided, but it sounds horrible, um, and the context is confusing. Um, 
as, as we engage with scripture, it's worth noting what's the context of the books that were written in, right? Because you only get one side of uh, written dialogue. And the issues that um, the Philippians were wrestling with were not the issues that the uh, Colossians were wrestling with. Because the image of God in Philippians tends to be this very intimate, you know, who abandoned all glory, uh, came on earth as a form of a servant, and then therefore be like him and stop fighting with another. And then you get in Colossians, this is the image of the invisible God who created all things and all things all together, right? He's this infinite, large, transcendent Jesus because uh, Paul is fighting a totally different set of issues in Colossae than he was at Philippi. Um, and, um, and so it sends you in slightly different trajectories of what he's emphasizing at each place. Um, I, as an Asian American, I find this all the time. Um, so, you know, um, when I read scripture, I read it through very um, Asian eyes often. So uh, there's those scenes where Jesus is calling um, uh, Peter, James, or James and John to follow him and leave their father in the boat and go follow him. And all I can think of whenever I read that passage is what is it like to be an Asian father watching your children leave you with the servants to carry on the family business? And I think um, in an Asian and in a Jewish context, um, how that would have blown their minds. Because that's every Asian family's deepest fear. If you're a business owner, is to be left with the hired help because your children aren't there anymore. Um, and it's interesting to me um, when I study the scripture with my largely Western friends, none of them think much about it because that's what you do. You eventually leave your parents, you start your own thing. And so it's great individuating, you know, it's great um, uh, individuating from your family, right? It's the go west young man, discover your destiny. How amazing that they're making some great adult choices. And all I can think of is, whoa, they've just abandoned their family, Right? Or um, when Jesus looks at Mary and his brothers when they come to pick him up because they think he's crazy, and he goes, who's my mother and my brother and my sisters? And I suspect he looks at Mary through the door and he goes, it's the people who follow the will of God. And he looks at the congregation in front of him. And coming from an indirect culture, that's the biggest rebuke you could ever give your parents. You are not my parents. My real family is somebody else. Right? Um, and so the early church engages that context. Let me conclude with this. Um, I love how they sum up their decision in the letter that they send. Right? So they, send, they, make, they come to a decision, um, and then they send a letter to the believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And the key line I want to look at is verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us, um, which is an interesting way to end up uh, describing their decision. It's unclear how they made this decision. They don't talk about a vote and what percentage they need to vote, 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 vote by. Um, nor do they say, well, we achieved consensus, everybody agreed. But somehow, after James spoke, it became clear to that body that this is really what the Holy Spirit was encouraging them to do. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote or demand consensus. But the challenge is when we think primarily in those terms, and I've watched congregations wrestle with these and other types of questions in the past, it suggests that we think of this largely in terms of winners and losers. Which party won versus which party lost? <clears throat> and it, it, we end up talking because once you talk about things like votes, it's inevitably a political language rather than um, a spiritual discernment language. 
which changes the posture of the conversation. I don't, my sense of you all, I, one of the things I love about coming here is, um, at least I perceive the deep love and affection you have for one another. Um, particularly those of you who've been here for a longer time. I mean, I've been visiting here now almost nine years or 10 years. I know many of you have histories that go far longer. Um, you stuck it out with each other for a very long time and blessed one another. Um, I think it's interesting that what, when they just, this early church describes their decision, it's a deep sense of spiritual discernment and not politicking. It wasn't, you know, the, we took a vote. It, it was clear how we should go. It, was, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. But there was um, a posture of we are approaching uh, these kind of decisions, seeking for the Lord to speak, agreeing together that we will submit to it, and then choosing as a community to develop the discernment capacity to pay attention to how the Lord is going to speak to us, which will involve scripture, it will involve conversations. It may involve a vote, right, because that's what polity requires. But I, I, I think there's um, a posture, similar to the posture if we're convinced God is sovereign and speaks, that postures us to saying, we're doing this as a community to discern together, that actually allows us to enter these conversations without rancor. And after the conversation and decision are made, um, to be able to proceed, which is what, to proceed in unity and joy together, which is actually the result that the early church had. Because when they announced the decision, we didn't read that far, but it was a long passage, um, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Right? This was life-giving by the time it was done. And so, um, <clears throat> that's what I pray for you and hope for you as you all engage in these harder conversations. Um, a deep prayerfulness. What is the Lord saying to us? How do we honor one another and bless one another so that we flourish in the Lord together? All right. How do we remain faithful to what Scripture is saying and, um, and responsive to that? How do we meet and engage the culture around us in ways which are true and faithful uh, and uh, relevant? Um, and how will we do that together rather than apart? Right? The results of this are great. Coming in, um, there were strong feelings, disagreements, uh, and, um, and convictions. Going out, there was a high degree of unity. The whole church agreed on this in verse 22. And in verse 25, all agreed that this was what needed to be done. Um, and uh, then the gospel spreads. And ministry occurs. And centuries later, um, we, most of us who I suspect are Gentiles, um, are fully included in the church. Maybe one last sober note. Uh, it's also telling to me that after this great show of discernment and triumph and unity, the next story that comes is uh, Paul and Barnabas disagreeing so sharply on how ministry should go that they part company. Right? Again, the book of Acts, uh, ruthlessly realistic, both about our triumphs and our failures. And so um, maybe the best thing I could do is then uh, let me pray for you all. Lord, you're good. Uh, for 2,000 years, you've preserved your witness to yourself. For 2,000 years, you continue to um, equip the church to declare that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord, to the glory of the God of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, as my brothers and sisters here wrestle,